Well, good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. This morning we are in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we're answering the question, why should Jesus' death captivate us? Why should Jesus' death captivate us? Now, while you find your place, I'm sure many of you are wondering, why is this guy wearing a t-shirt? Well, the ISD gave out a t-shirt this week to all of the, the senior pastors and asked them to wear it. It says, Hawks Unite for the 2020-21 year. Um, And so we want to support our local ISD. And tonight we have a prayer meeting at the school. Uh, So we are going to be meeting over at Eastridge at 6 o'clock, gathering around the flagpole to pray for uh, our school, to pray for the school year starting off. And so hopefully you guys will join me over there tonight at 6 o'clock as we you know, support uh, our local Red Oak ISD. So hopefully you guys have found your place by now in John chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading right there at the end of verse 16 on down to verse 30. Then we'll pray and then we'll dive into the message today as we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and the hope that Jesus provides us. Beginning right there at the end of verse 16. So they took Jesus And he went out bearing his own cross to the place, to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on one, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which said, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. And then he said to the disciples, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to open up your word, God, and to learn from it, to reflect on the crucifixion of Jesus, the climax, indeed, the climax of the Christian faith of your plan of redemption, God. Lord, as we reflect on this message this morning, help us, help us to see 
Jesus went through for us. Help us to see what Jesus' death accomplished, our redemption. And God, if there are people here this morning or watching online who do not know you, Lord, we pray that, that you work through this message to draw them to yourself. And for us who are believers, Lord, we pray that, that this message would cause us to praise and to worship you in a greater way, to be captivated by you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, at an early age, I was taught to finish what I started. And, and I've always tried to do just that, to finish what I start. And whether that be a sports season, a class, a project, a Bible study, whatever it may be, if at all possible, I try my best to finish what I start. Some things are easy. You know, I enjoy working out. And so riding my bike and completing a, a workout in that way is it's not really difficult for me. I, I enjoy that. I like that. I, I don't mind cutting the grass. Um, and so a couple of hours on my mower with, with a podcast or an audio book is, is really not a bad way for me to spend the morning or the afternoon once a week. Completing a seminary degree, though I enjoy it, is, is a bit more difficult. A lot of energy, a lot of time goes into it, but it's certainly worth it in the end. But painting my house, on the other hand, is not something that I enjoy especially when I have to paint all of the ceilings in the house. Man, who painted the ceilings the same color as the wall? I'm sure some of you probably have that, but we decided to have our ceilings a different color, so we had to paint all of them. Now, I didn't paint my house alone. My wife and other people have, have helped me to do that, but, but I can tell you, I can't tell you how good it feels to be finally done with painting the inside of the home. Now the project is not complete. I still got to do some touch-up work in my garage. And then I've got to paint 25 plus doors in my house so that they will be completely done. And, 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 I, and I started that project, so I'm going to finish the project. And not now, because it's like 100 and something degrees outside. And so I'm not going to be standing out in my garage painting or, or painting these doors out of my garage at, at that degree outside it's still hot in our garage we were in there yesterday refinishing our kitchen table and it was super hot but but it was only a short project and so we got that done as well but but hopefully hopefully come fall I can check this off of my list finally and I'm sure many of you are like this right you you want to finish what you have started sometimes that's easy for you to do Sometimes that, that is difficult for you to do. Sometimes it takes a matter of hours. Sometimes it takes a matter of weeks or months or years to finish that project or that thing it is that you started, but you're going to finish it. Now, finishing what we started is, is a universal desire. It's a desire that, that emanates from God himself. Our God is not a God who stops short. He does not leave project unfinished. He sees through what he has started. And last week we learned that Jesus' trial was according to plan, and, and we're going to continue with that same theme this week as we're going to see that Jesus' death was according to plan. And as we examine Jesus' death, we see that Jesus' death is a part of a larger project that began before the foundations of the world. Now we saw last week that, that Paul tells us this in, in Ephesians 1 and 2. 
And then we also see this is a project that that has its first mention in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, he he kicked them out of the garden. He he cursed them. But but before he did that, or as he's doing that, he gives this promise to them as he curses the serpent who represents Satan. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as we learned throughout the series that we went through just a short while ago, a view of the Bible from 30,000 feet, God's plan continued to come to light throughout the redemptive process. We learned it was necessary that God send a a Savior because mankind is desperately wicked. The worldwide flood, the Tower of Babel, is just an early indicator of how wicked we actually are. And then as we move through the narrative, we see that Abraham, he represents this narrowing of God's promise as it centers in on one family. As does God's promise to David that a king would sit on his throne forever and ever. And as you, as you read through the biblical narrative, you see that Jesus' death was according to plan. Jesus' death was not plan B. Jesus' death was plan A. And John goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus' death was according to plan in this chapter and in the previous chapter that we looked at last week. Jesus' death and the events surrounding it were according to plan. Now, as you work through chapter 19, you see this phrase that continually comes up over and over again, that that the scriptures might be fulfilled. It says that in one way or another as you you walk through chapter 19. We're going to look at three instances of this in verses 24 to 26, and it also occurs again in verse 37. So in verse 24, we learn that that Jesus' clothing was divided among the soldiers by lot, and this connects us back to Psalms chapter 22. This section from which this quote is pulled from reads like this. For the dogs encompass me. And this is David speaking, but, but this is alluding to the crucifixion as you can picture this. For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. The horn uh, from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. In verse 28, Jesus said, I thirst. And this is another instance that connects us back to Psalms chapter 22, as well as it connects us to Psalms chapter 69, which represents David's plea to God to rescue him from his enemies, not allowing them to have the last word. Certainly we see Jesus in Psalm 22 match the the events of the cross. As we read through that particular psalm there, you see that. These dogs are encompassing him. These evildoers are encircling him. His hands and his feet are, are pierced. They're casting lots for his clothing. 
And again, in Psalm 22, we see that He thirsts. In Psalm 69, we see that Jesus thirsts as well. And just as God rescues David from his enemies, God rescues Jesus from his enemies as well. He says there at the end of Psalm 22, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the great congregation. I will praise you. See, God rescues David from his enemies. God rescues Jesus from his enemies as well. As we'll learn next week, the, the, the cross is not the end. We'll look at the resurrection. Amen. But this week, we were focusing on what took place during Jesus' death. In verse 36, Scripture is fulfilled when Jesus' bones are not broken. Not only is that a connection back to Psalm 22 again, but this is also a connection back to the original Passover passage in Exodus chapter 12. When the Passover was instituted, if you remember the Israelites, they were to take a lamb and they were to, to slaughter this lamb. And they were to eat it. And they were to have their belt around their waist and they were to be ready to go. And they were also to do something specific that night. They were to take some of the blood from the lamb and they were to place that on the doorposts. And as the Lord came through that night, if he saw the blood on the doorposts of the house, he would not enter in and take the life of the firstborn. But those who did not have the blood on the doorpost, the Lord would not pass over, but the Lord would go in and He would take the life of the firstborn son. And that night, it's exactly what happened. The Israelites, they placed the blood on their doorposts, but the Egyptians did not. And as the Lord passed through, He passed over the houses of the Israelites. They were redeemed by the blood of that lamb, but the, the Egyptian sons were not. And if you remember, Pharaoh cast them out of the land, out there into the wilderness, so that they might worship the Lord. And one piece of instruction the Lord gave was, was that the Israelites were not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. And just as the Passover lamb's bones were not broken, we see here that Jesus' bones were not broken either. That's right. And that connection shows that Jesus serves as the eternal Passover lamb, the, the once and for all sacrifice for mankind. Jesus' blood assuages the Father's wrath. Jesus' blood redeems us from eternal death. All these actions took place according to plan to show that Scripture was fulfilled, and that Jesus' death was according to plan. As one commentator says, John wants to make his readers understand that every part of Jesus' passion was not only in the Father's plan of redemption, but a consequence of the Son's direct obedience to it. Jesus died according to plan, and His obedience was given to the Father's will. Nothing was done haphazardly, nor did Jesus go to the cross unwillingly. Jesus did not go to the cross kicking and screaming at all. He allowed Himself to be arrested in the garden. We saw that last week. Jesus could have walked away at any point. Jesus had power over them. Jesus had power over Pilate. The only reason that Pilate could pronounce a judgment on him was because the Father allowed it to take place. The only reason that Jesus went to the cross is because he allowed it to take place. 
If you remember that legion of soldiers, they, they fell to the ground as Jesus said, I am He. He is the great God. He is the all-sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe. And He allowed His sham of a trial to proceed so that it might be according to plan. He accepted the beatings and the ridicule. He willingly carried His cross to Golgotha. He allowed His hands and His feet to be pierced to the cross all according to plan. And we have to wonder, why did Jesus die for a sinful people? Well, Jesus died according to plan, despite our sin against Him, because He is a gracious God. In Hosea chapter 11, we see God's grace and mercy firsthand when He does not turn away from the Israelites, though they continue to sin against Him. Instead, beginning in verse 8, He says this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And O Ephraim represents the northern uh, portion of Israel after the split. So how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Expect you God to say something different there. You expect him to say, I will come in wrath because you have sinned against me. But God does not say that. Instead of destroying those who are there, what does God do? God draws near to them. Instead of sending his wrath on them, what does he do? He sends his grace and he sends his mercy to them. And though our sin is heinous, though our sin is, is offensive to God, it does not repel him away from those who are His. Instead, it causes Him to draw near. Jesus left His heavenly abode to live as a man, to die an unjust death at the hands of the Romans for those who rebelled against Him. And the same love that roused Jesus out of heaven is the same love and mercy that causes the Holy Spirit to draw us to Christ so that we will experience everlasting joy as adopted children of the Father. Amen. What compassion what love, what mercy and grace our God shows us. This is why Jesus died on a Roman cross at the hands of unholy sinners. We serve a merciful and a compassionate God whose heart is bent towards love and mercy. And at times, God's compassion, at times, God's love, it confounds us. One author I've been reading lately, and I would highly recommend this book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dan Ortland. He says this, The natural flow of the fallen human heart is toward reciprocity. Tit-for-tat payback, equanimity, balancing of the scales. We are far more intractably lawish than we realize. As a result, we find it difficult to believe that, that God would, would actually pursue us as he, did, as he does, that God would actually lavish his grace upon us. He would lavish his mercy upon us. But God tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts, and this represents His plans, 
his devices, his intentions, his, his purposes. He says, those are higher than yours can ever be. Those are grander than yours could ever be. How high? Well, as high as the heavens are from the earth. In other words, his thoughts, his love, his compassion toward us stretches far beyond our mental capacity, far beyond anything that we could ever even imagine. And this idea leads to that same author that I quoted earlier to say, his heartful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to Him. You see what He's saying? It's not about your work. It's not about you trying to clean yourself up. It is about what Jesus has done on your behalf. But that's not how we naturally view God, is it? We think of God as this, as this tyrant in the sky. We think of him as this someone who is peering in on our life. He's just waiting for us to mess up so that he could come down and slap us on the wrist or he can come down and even worse, pour out his wrath on us for all of eternity. But that is not the picture that Scripture gives us of God. Instead, God is a loving, merciful, gracious God whose heart is bent towards mercy. And what will it take for us to view God in this way? Because this is not how we naturally view God. This is not how the world views God. Go out and ask the world, how do they view God? And that's how they view Him. They view Him as this tyrant, as this person who is just waiting, just waiting to slap you. So what is it going to take? What's well, going to take completely different eyes to view God that way? We cannot look through our old eyes and understand the grace and the mercy of God. Instead, we need to look through the eyes that God gives us. Eyes given by the Father so that we can see Him as a gracious and loving and merciful God instead of a tyrant. Our God is a God who desires to pardon us. And God can pardon us because Jesus' death finishes God's redemptive plan. Look at verse 30 with me. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished? What is it that Jesus is claiming is finished here on the cross? Well, the Father and the Son's plan to redeem a people as a bride for the Son. Do you realize that, that we are all captives? We are all captive to the Father's wrath. Nothing that we can do in and of ourselves can ever escape the Father's wrath. And not only are we captive to the Father's wrath, but we are captive to sin. We are shackled by its chains. But, but what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and Jesus redeems us. He releases us from the captivity of sin. And Jesus confirms this back in John 8 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, it is Jesus who frees us. Not a, not a political figure, not a, not a revolution, not money, not status. Jesus is the one who frees us. We are redeemed. We are liberated by Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the one who frees us 
from captivity. He is the one alone who redeems us. You see, Jesus is the one who is the answer to a broken country, a broken system, because Jesus heals our broken hearts, which is what needs to be healed if our country, if the systems are going to be healed. Our hearts are desperately wicked. They are bent towards evil. And so those must be healed. Those must be redeemed. We must be released from the captivity of bondage of sin if we hope at all to have equality. Instead of calling for a revolution, we should be calling for renewal. A renewal of heart because that is the only thing that is going to redeem the broken world in which we live. And how does Jesus redeem? Well, Jesus redeems through His blood. See, we've already seen the connection to the Passover lamb. As, as that Passover lamb was, was slaughtered that night and the blood was placed on the doorpost and, and the firstborn was redeemed that night. But notice the connection to Jesus' blood specifically in verse 29. We're going to begin in verse 28 to get the context, but, but focus in on verse 29. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that, that, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now there is a debate regarding this, this hyssop branch, right? And it's just this flimsy stick. And so they're like, how can a sponge hold this sour wine they put up to Jesus so that he might be able to drink that? But nevertheless, this, th- this connects us back to the Day of Atonement. Is the priests, they, they would take this hyssop branch and they would, they would dip it in the blood of the lamb who had been slaughtered for the people. And then they would sprinkle that on the altar. They would sprinkle that on the people. They would sprinkle that all throughout the temple. And then they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle that blood in there. And on this day, it would atone for the sins of the people so that the people could, could reside with God in this place where, where, where heaven and earth are, are coming together. And this is what the temple represents. It's, it's almost like a mini Eden where God and, and the people are able to come together in relationship again. But remember, we got kicked out of Eden. We're sinful people. And so we need something to cover that sin. And it is the blood of the animal that covers that sin on the Day of Atonement as it is sprinkled there, this lamb that is sacrificed for our sins. But Jesus' blood, and Jesus' blood acts just as the blood of the Passover lamb. It covers us and it purifies us so that we might be able to have a relationship with the Father. But Jesus' sacrifice and, and the lamb's sacrifice, they are not exactly the same. You see, it's called the Day of Atonement. And it is the Day of Atonement that happens once a year, every single year. Not only to mention there are, there are all kinds of sacrifices that are happening throughout the year, but here's a special day where this lamb was slaughtered in our place. And this happened every single year. Every single year this took place. It was necessary because the lamb's blood would only last for a year. But here is Jesus. He is the Passover lamb who is slaughtered for us. And Jesus' sacrifice is a once and for all sacrifice. It never has to happen again. It is a better sacrifice according to the author of Hebrews. 
It covers us. It purifies us. His death redeems us from the bondage of sin. His death redeems us from Satan's mastery over us and, for, and, for, and from sure death where God's wrath will be poured out on us for all of eternity. And reflecting on Jesus' death should drive repentance. Jesus died because we sin. Our sin severs our relationship with God and our sin is punishable by death. Sin is costly. And as the priests made these sacrifices each day and once a year on the Day of Atonement, it is to remind the people of how costly their sin is. And Jesus' death, as we reflect on Jesus' death, we are to be reminded of just how costly our sin is. In college, I had a roommate, and in my, co- my college roommate, he ended up getting a, a DUI. And if you've ever known anyone who has gotten a DUI, you know that, that DUIs are very, very costly. He went to jail that night. He had to be bailed out, which costs money. And then he lost his ability to drive. And you know, it's not easy to get around if you don't have a car. He also had to pay a huge fine. He had to go and see a parole officer for a time. And he even had to attend classes, which he had to pay even more money for. And the reason that DUIs are costly, and rightfully so, is because they want to persuade you to not drive while under the influence. And just as the costly nature of a DUI is meant to persuade you, focusing on Jesus' death, the the infinitely costly, the the infinite cost of Jesus' death should persuade us from sin. See, repentance is just a succinct way of, of describing us turning from something. And in this case, we are to turn from sin. And we are to turn to follow God's way. And we are to live according to His wisdom. We are also to to turn from our unbelief. Our unbelief, our belief that, that we can somehow earn our own relationship with God. That we can somehow pay for that. That we can somehow do enough good works. Our self righteousness, our thoughts of ourselves that we are better than we really are. We are to turn from that unbelief. And we are to turn to believe in Jesus. We are to turn from believing that we are the ones who can earn it and believe that Jesus is the only one who can earn it on our behalf. And Jesus' costly death. We should reflect on that. As we reflect on Jesus' beaten and bloodied and pierced corpse hanging on the cross, it should remind us how costly our sin is. It should remind us how costly our rebellion against God is. It should persuade us to turn from our lustful thoughts. It should persuade us to turn from gossip and dissension, from adulterous behavior, from cheating and stealing and injustice, among a number of other sins that we commit against God, whether we consider these sins big or we consider these sins small. Just innocent little white lies. These are costly. So costly that Jesus had to come and die on the cross. He was beaten. He was bloodied. A crown of thorns was driven into his head. His hands and his feet were driven into a cross. He suffocated to death. A spear 
driven through his side because of our sin. Not to mention the fact that the Father's wrath is, is being poured out on us. The, the, the cup of wrath that had been being filled is poured out on us. It's poured out on him in our place. Amen. When we think about the cross and we think about Jesus' death, it should drive us to repentance away from living how we want to live, away from seeking to live as Big K King as we talked about in our past series, so that we might rightfully assume our place underneath God's kingship, underneath His leadership, and following Him. Our sin, no matter how small or innocent we might believe it might be, separates us from a holy God. And it required the perfect Son of God to come and die in our place. And we can and we should turn to God because Jesus' death took place according to plan so that you might believe and experience a restored relationship with God. You know, it's an odd place for a purpose statement to take place, but most of the time those take place at the beginning of the book where the author says, hey, this is why you should read my book. But John gives his purpose statement in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John tells us that he has provided this testimony about Jesus. Not just, not just the testimony of the cross, but the entire testimony throughout the book of the, John so that we might believe. Amen. Believe what? Well, believe that Jesus is our Savior, that he is the one who provides us with the relationship with the Father, a, a relationship that we can never earn that we should not look elsewhere for. The Savior, the Messiah, has come. He has died in our place. He has paid our debt. He has ransomed us from eternal death so that we might live according to God's plan and we might experience salvation. Jesus' death was not plan B. Rather, it is plan A. It took place according to God's eternal plan, a plan for which Jesus willingly and obediently submitted himself to. And he did it so that you might believe, so that you might believe that Jesus died on your behalf, so that you might believe that you are incapable of earning your own salvation, so that you might quit trying to work your way to God or taking some sort of pilgrimage or whatever it might be to, to earn your way to God or become a God yourself. Jesus came and he died on your behalf. And John has recorded this in Scripture God has given us His Word so that we might know the good news, so that we might believe. He does not leave us incapable. He does not leave us without understanding the magnitude of our sin. He does not leave us without the good news. And John wrote, and the other authors wrote, so that we might believe. Jesus' death should draw us to him. A God who would, who would die for us, even while we are his enemies, even while we are calling for his death. A God who would die for us is a God who should captivate us. 
A God who should draw us in. And Jesus is that God because Jesus has died in our place. Imagine that. God did not just send somebody to show us the path to him. God did not just send somebody as an example. God himself came and died on our behalf so that he might make a way for us to have a relationship with him and experience eternal life. That is simply amazing. God's heart is bent towards mercy. God's heart is bent towards love and sacrifice. And we see that in the death of Jesus. And so instead of wandering away from him, looking for soul calm anywhere else except for in his loving embrace, we should run to Jesus. We should worship him. We should praise him. We should believe in him. We should call him our Lord and our Savior. And so do you know the Savior this morning? If you know him, worship him. Praise him. Turn to him. And if you don't know the Savior this morning, Run into his loving arms. Believe in Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day for you to turn to Jesus and to place your trust in him and to admit that he is your Lord and to admit that he is your Savior. And so won't you turn to Jesus today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you today thankful for the cross, thankful for Jesus' death on our behalf, thankful that, that he comes and redeems us. And Lord, we ask that those who know him, that we might be driven to him, to be captivated by him, to worship him and praise him in an even greater way, to tell others about the good news. And for those who do not know Jesus, who are here or watching this morning, God, we pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself so that they might see Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, that they might believe and might experience the hope that we have, God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.